It's December, and this is the December edition of the D&B Supply Lawn and Garden Podcast. And today I've got Matt Breckwald, who hosts the Land and Animals Podcast for D&B with me. And he's going to chime in and visit with us from time to time. And I know a lot of you are saying, what the heck are we going to talk about in December when it comes to uh, gardens and lawns? Um, and you'd be surprised. We grow a lot of things in December. We've got Christmas trees. We've got all kinds of flowering plants, and we're going to cover some of that. Not to mention some of the things that you might be able to do outside this time of year as well. So thanks for joining me today. Matt, thanks for being here with me. It's always nice to have an extra voice, and I'm glad that you're here with me today. All right. Well, Debbie, hey, thank you so much for having me on. You know, it's fun to listen to your shows, and uh, I learned so much. For me to be able to chime in and ask you a few questions is going to be a lot of fun. Perfect. I'm glad you're here. So even though it's December, we can talk a lot about things that are growing and a lot of cool things that are happening outside. One of the coolest things that's happened to me in the past month, and I know that last month I mentioned something about the Anna's hummingbirds that show up about mm-hmm. the middle of October around here. And typically, if you see a hummingbird between about the middle of October and the middle of March, it's more than likely an Anna's hummingbird. So I saw a hummingbird um, Halloween. And then I didn't see a hummingbird again for weeks and weeks and weeks. Well, this last couple of weeks, I have had a hummingbird visiting my hummingbird feeder. And I'm pretty excited about that. Um, One of the things that's interesting is I think that it was in about uh, 2000, or it was about 1976, I think, is when they first started noticing or recording sightings of a hummingbird in the area during the time of year when it wasn't supposed to be here. So about 2015, the Intermountain Bird Observatory, which is a part of the Boise State University, started doing a study on what the heck is going on with these hummingbirds. And I think I told the story last month about how they actually came to my house. It must have been about 2016 and actually caught the hummingbird. They trapped it at my feeder and banded the thing and then turned it loose. So um, that was pretty fun. And I have hoped ever since then, to have another Anna's hummingbird show up and never have. But now it appears that I do. Um, So what I have done is I have gotten myself a heated hummingbird feeder uh, because I noticed even the other morning when it was so cold, my hummingbird feeder was frozen solid, of course. Um, And so you can get heated hummingbird feeders that they make, which have little uh, lights underneath the feeder itself that keeps uh, that sugar syrup, you know, from freezing. Okay. Um, so I'm going to see if I can keep it, you know, through the winter. Can Typically, I ask what the sure you can. How do you trap a hummingbird without hurting it? You know, it was pretty interesting because what they did is they put a net over my hummingbird feeder, um, and it was kind of like a kind of like a drop cloth. Mm-hmm. And um, we, she just waited inside my sliding glass door with this cord that was connected to that, you know, that netting. And they had a general idea of when the hummingbird would come every day to my feeder. And so she just waited inside. And sure enough, he showed up and they dropped that net around the feeder. And then she could just reach into that net and actually grab the hummingbird with her hand. Okay. 
And the thing that was interesting about it is because they're so, they almost go into a hypnotic state at that point and don't really move Hmm. because she was able to lay it on its back on the scale and weigh the hummingbird um, and put a teensy, tiny, tiny, tiny little numbered band around their tiny little leg and record all of that information and, um, you know, do some checking on the health of the bird and showed me some interesting things about the feathers. And then she said, okay, we're finished. If you want to release it, she said, I'll put him in your hand. And she said, he's going to sit there for just a you know a couple seconds before he flies away. And sure enough, they put him in my hand and I held him in my hand and off he flew. Um, so she was able, just without any tranquilizer or anything like that, she could lay a hummingbird on its back. Yes. Because it, obviously she can't be touching it to weigh it. No, and, right. And it she, just it laid there and she was able to get a weight. Yes, she was. And it just laid there like a frozen little bird. It just didn't move at all. It was very interesting. Yeah. She put like a little dot of it was that um the whiteout that people used to put on um typewriter mistakes yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> in the olden days. But she put a little tiny dot of that on his forehead um because she said it wasn't gonna wash off with weather it didn't bother them at all but i would be able to identify the fact that a bird whether it was my bird or some other bird that had been you know banded but um it was just an identifying feature that that bird was being followed and tracked that worked so, great unless she did it with an expert she trapped well <laughs> exactly but like i said you don't know exactly which bird is at your feeder but you know that it's one that they're tracking right 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 so right. it was pretty cool so like i said i'm hoping that um my bird will hang around all winter i haven't noticed any kind of pattern to it showing up yet um the hummingbird feeder that i had was one that was one of the pinkish purple kind of ones because i heard that that would help keep bees away from your hummingbird feeder in the summer which seemed to work pretty well but the heated hummingbird feeder i got of course is red like most you know it's got the red parts to it and i'm wondering if that will be more attractive to that particular bird so i'm interested to find out i'm you know i'm really curious to see how that's going to go so that's a cool thing that's been happening in my garden this past month the other thing that I think is kind of interesting is I have been playing a bit with squirrels because I have so many squirrels in my backyard right now that get into my feeders. And, you know, um, sunflower seeds aren't exactly cheap, but I don't really want to feed that many squirrels, hummingbird feeder or sunflower seeds all day long. So my uh, bird feeders are hanging from the, those shepherd's hooks. And I got baffles at D&B. They had these metal baffles that I could connect to the bottom of my pole uh, to keep the squirrels from climbing up the pole. And that works perfectly as long as your feeder is not near um, a building or a fence or a shrub or a tree where they can jump onto the feeder. Mm -hmm. Um, So some of my feeders I've had success and some of them I keep going out and pruning off limbs because I can see the squirrels will hang down on a limb and then leap over onto the feeder. So it's like, I am taking care of that. And I go out and clip off, (laughs) clip off a branch. So I've been playing with squirrels and watching hummingbirds this past month. So sounds fun. Now it's December and it's time to start thinking about, we're all thinking about um, bringing Christmas plants or holiday plants of some sort into our homes. 
And if you're going to bring a Christmas tree in, I thought I'd talk a little bit about what you might look for and what you might consider when you're going to bring a tree in. Um, I would like to say that if you are going to use a live tree, and by live, I mean one that is potted up that you plan on planting in your garden after the holidays, um, those cannot be kept inside very long. And by not very long, I'm talking three to five days is the most that you can keep them in your house. Um, otherwise, you risk them breaking dormancy. And then if you put them outside, because they're no longer dormant, you'll get some damage and, and most likely kill the plant. It won't live over the winter. So you've got to be very careful about that if you are using a live tree. Uh, sometimes it's best to use those outside of a window and decorate them where you can see them from the inside of the house. Um, but if you're going to get a cut tree, one that you're going to a lot to buy, please know that these are coming from tree farms. They're not going up and clear cutting hillsides of, you know, the forest for these trees. Um, they're grown on a farm just like a crop. Uh, just like a potato or, you know, anything else. It just takes longer to get that crop to where you're going to actually harvest it. Um, and sometimes those trees can be harvested weeks and weeks in advance. So the earlier you can buy those trees and get them into water, whether you decide to put them in your house or not, the sooner that you can get those trees into water, the longer and the more um, beautiful they're going to be in your home. So when you go to look for a tree on a lot, first of all, before you even go to the Christmas tree lot, take a look around your house and see where you're going to put it. Um, try to avoid heat sources. So I'm talking don't put them too close to a fireplace. If you can avoid any kind of a heat vent, that would be great. Anything like that that's going to be, you know, putting heat out into the room, the further away from uh, that heat source the tree is, the better. Uh, as far as keeping it fresh through the season. Um, the other thing about it is, is look at your look at your tree stand, because how many of us have gotten home and said, oh, God, this isn't going to fit in the tree stand. So look at really the base of your tree stand to see mm -hmm. how big of a trunk you're actually going to be able to fit into that stand. I will caution you about shaving the sides of the trunk down to fit into a tree stand. While that will certainly work, if you keep in mind the way a tree um, or a plant takes up water, think about the um, the heartwood of the tree. So it's you know the center part of the tree, and then right underneath the bark, consider like you've got a ring of straws right underneath the bark. Oh, Those okay. straws are what is going to move the water up that tree. Wait, I know this one from college. That's the xylem and the phloem. Yes, exactly. And xylem <laughs> takes things up the tree and phloem brings things down the tree. And we don't have to worry so much about the phloem because the tree is not going to be photosynthesizing and it's got no roots and we don't care about that. But we certainly want the tree to take up as much moisture as possible to keep those leaves, you know, flexible. The needles are a leaf a modified leaf. So we want to make sure we keep those as fresh as possible. So um, one of the things you don't want to do is destroy those straws. And by, you know, having to shave the sides of the tree off to fit into a tree stand, you're certainly, you know, destroying that, this, the vascular system that's going to be moving water up that tree. So keep that in mind when you're looking at a tree. So when you get to the tree lot to look at a tree, you're going to look for a tree that's got the most flexible 
needles that you can find. Um, so, you know, bend a needle and make sure that they're nice and flexible. If they're brittle and, and the green needles are falling off, that tree has been cut way too long and is too dry. And I would avoid purchasing a tree that's dropping a lot of green needles. Now, keep in mind, these trees have been sheared most likely and evergreen trees normally will lose some of their interior needles. So more than likely, you're going to find some dead needles on the interior part of the tree, which is not a problem at all. Um, but I would say try to get those out of there before you bring them into the house. You might want to shake the tree and see how many needles actually fall off of the tree. And once again, if it's losing a lot of green needles that are brittle, walk right on by that tree and, and you know, and look further. So um, before you leave the lot, one of the things, and most lots will offer this service, is they're going to cut a little disc off of the bottom of your trunk. And why are they doing that? To open up the bottom of your straws, because it doesn't take very long, just several hours, really, once the tree has been cut, um, that all of the sap is going to start sealing up all of those little tubes to help hold moisture in the tree itself. Okay. So what we're going to do is we're going to ask them and you can do it yourself. If you get home and you've got a saw or something, you can certainly do it yourself. And you only need to cut off about an inch of the bottom of that trunk, really. And what that's going to do is open up, like I said, the bottom of those straws to allow it to take up water. And so once again, you don't have to put the tree up the day after Thanksgiving. Um, you, but what I would suggest once again is when you're looking for a tree, look early, um, you'll get the best choice. And then once again, you'll be able to get it in water and keep it fresh until you bring it into your house. So those are some things that you might want to consider, um, when you're looking for a Christmas tree. Debbie, where do, uh, the trees that you can buy at lots here in the Treasure Valley, are they coming out of Oregon? Where are they coming from? They're coming out of Oregon. Most of them are coming out of Oregon. And so once a tree's cut, what's its, I don't know, it probably varies on the conditions in your house, but what's its lifespan until it it needs to be taken out? It's getting too dry. You know, I'm going to say if I, just as a rule of thumb and just as a guess, I'm going to say if you keep your tree in water um, and it's not sitting, you know, by your fireplace or something, I'm going to say you can probably get a month out of your tree and it can, you can keep it in fairly good condition. Oh, wow. Okay. You know, I think that, you know, I think that that's pushing it, but I certainly think that you can do that. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. So a lot of us these days are choosing artificial trees um, <laughs> to avoid the whole problem. And every once in a while, I don't mind putting up a Christmas tree, but I don't really like taking down a Christmas tree. <laughs> and it's at that point that I say, what I need is just a hole in my floor with a little elevator <laughs> and I can just lower it down, cover it up. And then next year I can just raise it back up <laughs> and there it'd be. So, you know, you were asking where the Christmas trees come from. Um, yep. And like I said, most of them come from Oregon, but I can remember years and years ago. And this is when my kids were very small. There was a Christmas tree lot that was out. Uh, it wasn't a lot. It was a farm, a Christmas tree farm um, that was out past Middleton by the freeway and it was called Hopkins Tree Farm. I'm not sure what it is now. I, I, when I go down the freeway, I can see that the trees are still there and they're huge trees now. Okay. But we used to go out as a family in October 
or in early November before it got really, really cold and muddy and make a, you know, a day of going out there and choosing a Christmas tree. Mm -hmm. And what they would do is they would tag the tree for you. And then when you were ready for your tree, you would call them up and say, can we come and pick up our tree? And it just so happens that my husband's birthday was the 10th of December. And that was kind of our tradition as we'd put up the tree okay. on his birthday. So we'd call and say, can we come and pick up our tree on the 10th? And they would say, sure. And they'd cut it for you that day. So it was nice and fresh. Um, and then we'd, you know, take it home and decorate it. But as the years went by, the trees got bigger and bigger and um, every, then they started taking the tops out of trees. The trees themselves were too big to be of any okay. use for, as a Christmas tree, but you could cut the tops out of the tree. And so you'd stand there and you'd look at these <laughs> big trees and you'd look at the tops of the trees and say, huh, I wonder how big that, <laughs> that really is. And why I say, look at the space that you have in your house, because we brought home a tree several years that was like, wow, we, that's big. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's a big tree. But it was a really fun. Um, it was a really fun thing to do. It was a fun outing in the fall. Uh, you knew your tree was fresh. It was nice to go to the same place every year. And I just don't know of any place like that anymore. I know you can get, you know, a license from the Boise uh, Forest, Boise National Forest, and you can go cut your own trees. Yeah. Um, and that's always that's always a cool, fun thing to do too. And I think people are kind of surprised when they get up there that they're, they don't look anything at all really like the trees that you get <laughs> in a tree lot. That's right. <laughs> so, but it's also a very fun thing to do. So that's something else that people can keep in mind. And for people that haven't, or that are new to the area is that you can certainly, you know, call the Boise National Forest and get a permit and um, it's minimal cost for the permit. And then you can go up and find yourself a tree. Yeah. You know, that's that's a really good deal on a tree. And it's a fun day, too. It is a fun day. It really is. So um, highly encouraged to do that. If you've never done that before, it's a really fun thing to do. We always we always do it. And it comes on the tail end of hunting season. And I'm not a great hunter, but I always fill my tag <laughs> when it comes to Christmas tree hunting. Oh, I was going to say, I thought you were a good tree scouter. You're not, you're not much of a hunter, but you're a good tree scouter. <laughs> One way or the other, I find success in December when it comes to Christmas tree. Good for you. Some other things that we're bringing into our house this time of year, the poinsettias that are, it used to be you could get a red one. Now you can get pink, you can get striped, you can get yellow. Um, some people have gotten carried away and they've even started dying or spraying them, um, which I personally don't care for, uh, but man, they've got some amazing colors of poinsettias out there. Um, these are a plant that uh, was introduced to this country from Mexico. And in places like California, they grow outside year round. And it's amazing when you see a hedge oh. of, and you're like, wait a minute, that looks like a, it is <laughs> kind of a thing. But um, yeah, when you were looking for one, one of the things to keep in mind is all the colors that we're seeing, the colorful leaves are not leaves at all, but they're a bract, which is a colorful leaf that basically attracts the pol or a, a colorful um, bract or leaf looking thing that attracts the pollinators to the blossom, which is the little center of that, that bract. You will find a little um, button 
a little yellow button type shape that's filled up with what are the flowers of the poinsettia. And that's what you're going to look for when you're purchasing one, when you're purchasing a plant is you want those to not be opened up. If you see that those flowers have already bloomed and are spent, you'll know that that poinsettia is not as fresh as you might like it to be to keep, to keep an ideal prime plant through the holiday. The other thing to keep in mind is that these things are really um, touchy about cold temperatures. And if it gets below about 50 degrees, they will drop their leaves. And it doesn't take any time at all for them to be exposed to that temperature for them to drop those leaves. Hmm. So if you purchase one, don't just pick it up off the counter and waltz out to your car with it, especially with, you know, if it's a really cold day. Um, but put it in a bag, you know, a paper bag in particular, and cover the top of it with another bag to protect it from the weather and, you know, protect it as best you can from the elements when you're taking it out to your car. Man, I find that unbelievably ironic. I completely associate poinsettias with winter because of Christmas, but they can't take the cold temperatures. They can't take the cold temperatures. That's funny. So, isn't it? These things can be kept year round if you want to. You can keep them basically after the holidays. A lot of times I know people are sick to death of, <laughs> of holiday plants and pitch a lot of them when they start dropping their leaves. But you can certainly keep them as a house plant. They need to have about four to six hours of indirect light a day. Um, but yeah, you can keep them probably indoors as a house plant until about mid April, the first part of April, they're going to probably start looking pretty sad by then. They're going to have dropped a lot of their lower leaves. And at that point, you can cut those things back to like about six to eight inches. They will relief for you when the temperatures outside get to be about, you know, above 50, 55, 60 degrees. You can put those things outside and grow them as a plant outside through the whole summer. And they will continue to leaf out and get real bushy for you. You'll fertilize them through the summer. And then in the fall, when the temperature starts to fall, you'll bring them into the house. Um, and then you can uh, help promote them coloring up again by giving them 14 hours of darkness a day for 10 weeks. So that entails either putting them in a closet, covering them up with a bag of some sort okay. that uh, they will, can, they'll, you know, color up for you again. I used to have a listener of the radio show that would send me pictures of some poinsettias that she has kept for like five years. And, oh my yeah. gosh, they were gorgeous. They were huge and just gorgeous. Um, they'd gotten so big that it was hard for them to actually move them in and out of the house and try to cover them and stuff. But man, they were successful and pretty. So it's not, you know, it's not impossible to do that. And it's kind of fun to do as well. I tried it, um, but I believe that I was not diligent enough and I got partial coloring, but I wouldn't say, I wouldn't have been able to charge money for that plant. <laughs> Let's say okay. that. Okay. But, um, but like I said, I wasn't, uh, I, I don't think I was as diligent as I should have been. Another plant that we grow a lot of, or that we bring into our homes in the winter are amaryllis bulbs. And those are the great big bulbs that you see. They shoot up a long stalk and then they've got a lily type flower at the top. It's usually a trumpet flower that is, um, 
you'll get three or four blossoms at the top of this long stem. And the stem can usually be, you know, a foot to 18 inches tall before you get the flowers. It's a gorgeous plant. Um, and it's one, like I said, you can buy them almost any place. Um, grocery stores will be selling amaryllis bulbs in boxes, and they'll usually come in a kit with uh, like a plastic pot, and it will come with a little disc of a peat-type soil that you'll mix, you know, you'll put it in water and it'll expand, and you'll have a, a nice peat base for that bulb. And then you put the bulb in and stick it in a window, and there you go. Um, just like any bulb, which is a pretty cool little package, bulbs already are self-contained. The flower is already in the bulb. So you can easily, almost always, get a bulb to bloom the first year because the flower is already there. Uh, and I'm talking tulips, daffodils, amaryllis, crocus, any of those things, the flower is within that bulb. Um, but you can plant these. You leave the top probably half of the bulb out of the soil. Make sure that you don't overwater. As with any bulb, they're prone to root rot. So you want to keep them, you know, moist, but on the drier side. And, you know, you'll get, you'll get a gorgeous flower. They come in all different colors from white to red. They have one called apple blossom, which is pink and white striped. Um, they have a darker pink color. They've got lots of different, different colors. But like I said, you can find these about anywhere. I have planted two new ones this year that were a gift to me from one of my good friends that are starting to send up their little flower spikes right now. They're just barely sticking their little noses up. Um, but I have th four bulbs that I kept through the summer from last year. And it's the same thing as once the flower has bloomed and the, you know, and has the flower is spent, cut the flower stalk off, but the leaves themselves, which are long strappy leaves, I left those on and kept the bulbs as a house plant through the winter. When it got nice enough in the spring, I moved them out and I kept them outside all summer long and they had gorgeous leaves. I just like, I should have fertilized and I didn't. I didn't fertilize the bulbs through the summer, and I should have. So we're going to see what happens. But I've brought them in. Um, the leaves basically died back, just like they would on a tulip bulb or a daffodil bulb. I left them until they were mostly all yellow, and then I cut those leaves off. I'm going to leave those bulbs out in my garage. They're in their pots. I didn't even take them out of the pots. I left them in their pots. I'm going to leave them in my garage until I see new growth starting. And I would expect that within a couple of months, maybe six weeks, I'm going to see them starting to also re-sprout. Will they bloom for me again? I hope so. Um, I'll keep you posted. Uh, but they're a fun bulb. I have had luck doing that before. A pointer that I can give you about buying an amaryllis bulb in um, a box is look inside of that box before you purchase it because sometimes those bulbs have started to grow inside that box mm -hmm. and because there's no room for them to grow, they'll get all wonky, you know, and curvy and all that kind of stuff. And will they straighten up again? I don't know if they will. So I would check inside the box and make sure that one, 
if it has started to sprout, that it hasn't damaged, you know, the flower stem itself by growing into the side of the box. Well, now, so wait a minute. Someone's got to give that bulb some love, kind of like Charlie Brown with that really horrible. That's thing. true. And if you want to be that person, I <laughs> encourage you to do that <laughs> because you're right. <laughs> All bulbs need love. <laughs> so good point, Matt. So anyway, if you've not grown an amaryllis, they're really fun to grow and they make a really nice gift, especially if you've got someone that is housebound or, you know, in a nursing home or something because it grows quickly. It's quite dramatic and um, and pretty fun. So keep an eye out for those. A couple of really fun things are going on during the month of December when it comes to lighted areas. And one of the things that I like to talk about is winter garden aglow, which happens out at the Idaho Botanical yes. Garden. Yes. It is, um, it's an amazing event. They light up the garden with about, this year they've got about a half a million lights. Wow. Um, it is timed ticketing as it has been as it was last year, mm -hmm. which means you have to get your tickets in advance. Um, and they will tell you, you'll be, you'll get a ticket for a time block, you know, so you will know when to go. Um, but it's well worth it. It's one of the biggest fundraisers that the garden has uh, to help to support the garden. And if you are new to the area or somebody who just hasn't been out to the botanical garden, it is a treasure. Um, it's kind of a hidden treasure out there by the old penitentiary. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous garden. And they have all kinds of demonstration gardens. They have a firewise garden out there, all kinds of plants that are labeled. So you'll know what a plant looks like if you're considering growing something or if you see something that you love. They test plants out there as to how they might grow in our area that we don't typically grow here. It's just a real... Um, it's just a real benefit to the gardeners of this area to have that garden. So anytime we can help, um, just help the garden, I think that that's a great thing to do. And honestly, winter garden glow is a very cool, fun thing to do. Yeah, it really is. Another cool thing to do in another part of the valley, and this is something that's also flabbergasting, and that is in Caldwell at Indian Creek. It's down, and have you done, and Matt, you must have done that, have you? It if you is, I, I, every time I go, I am blown <laughs> away with the, what the city of Caldwell has done. It's phenomenal. First of all, I think it's phenomenal that they opened the creek. Yes, The fact that this, this Indian Creek used to be underground, but they daylighted this creek and opened it up, and it made all the difference to yes. downtown Caldwell, I think. It's just the coolest area ever. Any time of year, it's cool. But these, <laughs> these merchants, honestly, the city of Caldwell, they have over a million lights that they put up around this area downtown along this creek. Um, it's, it, it is an amazing feat, yeah. I have to say. Chops to them. Yeah, I, uh, you know, you're already getting me in the Christmas spirit here, Debbie, but honestly, if and I say this in all seriousness, if you are having difficulty getting like we're having a warm fall. So let's say we don't have any snow. It's December 15th. You're just like, I'm just not feeling it this year. Go out to Caldwell and walk around downtown, get a coffee or a hot chocolate or something like that. Listen to the Christmas music. Uh, you will get in the Christmas spirit. It, it, they do a wonderful job. 
Yes, they do. And there's music and there's vendors and the merchants are, you know, have their stores open Mm -hmm. and um, it's just a very, very cool. um, It's a cool atmosphere and you're right. It will get you in the spirit. If you're having, if you're having a little trouble, take a drive to Caldwell because you won't be sorry. You know, it's funny in my family, we've gone from, we should go out there and check that out to now it's mandatory at Christmas. Oh, it's just, it's amazing. And you know, one of the things, and I was, I'm sorry, I don't have it in front of me, um, but their parade, their Christmas parade, which is at night, um, it is a, it's a lit parade. So all the floats are all lit up. Um, It's just, it's, it's very cool. So good for them. A couple of housekeeping notes that I would say. And one of them is if you are a person that parks their car outside without a garage um, and you've got cats that wander around, cats love to climb up into those nice warm engines and find a tiny, nice little spot where they can curl up and be cozy. Before you start your car in the morning, bang on that hood of your car and startle that cat and make sure that it jumps out uh, if it's in there, that it will jump out before you start your car. Um, there have been some really serious issues with cats that have been um, caught in fan belts and all that kind of stuff, which is not cool at all. So give it a give it a tap before you you know before you start your car. This Christmassy episode has taken a turn. It taken a turn for the worse, the dark side. <laughs> The, the dark side of it's really a good side. I'm trying to save cats. Um, <laughs> the other thing that I want to mention is that um, if you are a person that has planted roses and you're new to the area, one of the things that happens in our area is um, the graft of roses. Most roses are grafted. If you are, if it's not a grafted rose, don't worry about this. But if it is one of the hybrid tea roses, it will be a grafted rose. And that graft is typically planted underground in our area. In other areas of the country, that graft might be planted above ground. But here, just because of the winters that we sometimes get uh, that are very cold, that grafted area is the most fragile part of the rose and it can be damaged and basically kill off the top part or the the valuable part of your rose and leave the rootstock. So if you're planting, make sure that you plant the graft underground around here. But if you have planted rose and your graft is above ground, you're going to have to mulch that really well. Mm-hmm. Whether you use compost or whether you use sawdust or whether you use bark mulch or something like that, just try to protect that grafted area in case... Who knows? We get a really cold winter, as sometimes we have been known to do. Um, it will protect that grafted area. Um, sometimes people will say, I used to have a gorgeous white rose or yellow rose, and now it's a, a little red rose. It gets little roses on it. And the grafted roses are typically um, the grafted rootstock is usually not an ideal looking rose. It's usually a early spring bloomer. The roses are very small and pretty insignificant. Um, but they're, they're very strong, hardy root systems. And 
the um, the grafted portion of it, the really pretty hybrid tea part that you have paid usually a lot of money for, uh, that you baby along, those roses do not have a very strong root system, and consequently, they have been grafted to that strong root stock. Um, if the top part dies off somehow, and people will say, I used to have a pink rose and now it's red, that would usually be because what has happened is the top part, the ideal part has died back, but that strong root system has continued to grow. You will see the same thing on trees sometimes. Um, when I bought my house, I had a, it was a Crimson King maple, so the leaves were red, but I had a sucker that had come up from the rootstock of a green maple. And so I had half of my tree that was really green from the rootstock, but the grafted portion was red. Sometimes you'll see um, a dogwood tree that will have a pink or and a white blossom on it. It's because something has come from the rootstock. Um, and so a, a weeping cherry sometimes will have suckers from the graft from below the graft that will send suckers straight up, and they'll say, "Why is my tree not weeping anymore?" because it's from the rootstock rather than from the grafted portion of the plant. Mm -hmm. So the grafted portion of the plant is always, like I said, probably the most susceptible area of the tree to any kind of damage or weakness. Sometimes the graft is, you know, an incompatible graft. Sometimes it just didn't take very well, but sometimes that can be a real problem for, you know, a plant, especially a large plant like a tree where you've got quite a bit of time invested. So protect that root stock or protect that graft, I should say, sorry. One more thing I wanna mention before we kind of wrap it up and that is if you have grown gourds and you are drying your gourds and the gourds that I'm talking about are the smooth skinned gourds like the dipper gourds or the birdhouse gourds, um, the gourds that bloom with a white flower in the summertime, those will take quite a while to dry out. And as you've got them spread out and drying, you might notice that they are developing kind of a black mold, a fuzzy mold that's growing on the outside of the, of the gourd itself. The first time that happened to me, I thought what was going to happen was, is that that mold was going to eat through the gourd, that it was actually going to decay or, you know, destroy the gourd. That's not the case at all. It's just the bacteria that's on uh, or the fungus spores that are on the outside of the gourd. Mm -hmm. And as all that moisture evaporates, that mold, those spores will, you know, germinate and grow on the outside. Doesn't hurt the gourd at all. Um, some people like it because as it's there, it leaves kind of a mottled pattern on the outside of the gourd when you, you know, wash the mold off. Um, you can certainly wipe it off if you want to use something like, um, uh, Lysol or some disinfectant type of stuff to wipe down, down the outside of the gourd if you don't want it there, but it's not harmful to the gourd at all, but it can freak people out when it starts happening. Um, so I'm just giving you the little heads up there, uh, not to worry about that. So we have covered a lot of stuff for having it be December in the garden. If you wow. ask me, you like December. Um, this is a lot of content. There's a lot of stuff to talk about in December when you think that there wouldn't be. So if you have got tulip bulbs or daffodil bulbs or crocus bulbs that haven't been planted yet, 
could I be talking to myself? Maybe. It's not too late to plant them. You can go out as long as you can get them in the ground. You can get those things planted. And like I said, bulbs have already got their little flower already inside. Give them a little um, a little spot to grow and you'll get the flower in the spring. It's not too late to do that. So there's my December tips for the month. I awesome. hope you have a really, really great holiday. Um, no matter how you celebrate it, I hope it's a wonderful month for you. I want to thank you so much for listening. And I hope you learned a little something this month. Matt, thanks so much for joining me today. Loved having you, having you with me. Hey, my pleasure. Thank let's, you. Let's do it again. Okay. Okay. So thank you so much. And I'll be seeing you all in the garden. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.